All right. You are amped up today. Do you know that? Just, I mean, it's the Matt talk. Yeah. Just <laughs> listening to you sing, seeing the energy during this song, man, that was really exciting. So it's a good day. We, we've been, had a good beginning to our year as we've been focused on as a church, looking at Jesus. Now, for those of you who haven't had a chance to meet, my name is John. I'm the pastor around these parts, and we've been talking about Jesus from the perspective of his best friend, a guy named John. And John actually wrote a gospel, one of the four gospels in the New Testament, to tell us about his best friend, Jesus. And not only are we uh, learning about it in our weekend services with the message, but we're discussing it and going further in our groups during the week. And if, you're, if you want to be a part of this church family, or if you are a part of this church family, and you're not in a group, I want to encourage you to, to get in one, um, at least for the next 11 weeks or so. Because there's going to be so much. We're going through the entire Gospel of John in just 12 weeks. It's not possible for me to do that in 30 to 35 minutes or 45 minutes, depending on how long the sermon goes on the weekend. I can't get through all of that in that time. And so it's really important that we're getting together to not only process what we're talking about here, but we can also talk in groups about some things we don't have time to get to here. So I want to encourage you to join a group. We've got um, a bunch of them available. They're not creepy or weird, at least not by design. So, I mean can't help what you can't help, you know, but, uh, but they're not creepy or weird. They do meet at people's houses because in general. And, uh, so I want to encourage you to join when we got, we got a group that anybody could be a part of. We have, uh, a men's group that is actually going to start next week meeting here on Sunday nights. They're going to meet at the same time that our youth ministry is meeting from four to five 30. That's the correct time. I believe four to five 30 here at the school. So particularly if you're a guy and you've got a teenager, bring them to youth ministry and just stick around for men's group. That would be awesome. And, um, so that'll be starting next week. There is no youth ministry tonight and there is no men's group tonight because there's apparently a football game tonight. I don't know. I heard, I heard there's some, some fans with some, some team-related things on in the room and are pulling for their particular teams. Um, I'm pulling for the commercials, and I am pulling for the halftime show not to be terrible. So it's Jennifer Lopez and Shakira, I understand. Those hips don't lie, so keep it clean, ladies. That's what I'm saying. And uh, so it'll be interesting. But anyway, so those groups aren't starting tonight. They'll start next week. Monday night, we have an empty nesters group. So those are, that's for folks whose kids are grown and out of the house. And um, that's actually that's starting tomorrow, led by my wife and I. I know we're not empty nesters. Our, our nest is very much full right now. But uh, we wanted to get that group going, and so we're leading that one on Monday night. So any of you are welcome to join us for that. And then um, Tuesday night, we have uh, a group being led by Dennis Welch, which is open to anybody. So it's not specified by married or single or men or women or anything like that. Just anybody can be a part of Dennis's group on Tuesday nights. And our young adults group meets on Tuesday night as well. So that kind of 20-ish range age. And uh, I think that's it on Tuesdays. And then on Wednesdays, we have a women's group that is meeting. We have a couples group that are mostly uh, couples that have kids, you know, younger kids. And uh, there's also a Bible study that meets, and you guys are on Wednesdays? You're on Wednesdays, right? So that, and they're doing a study on Hebrews. So if you're looking for a little different flavor than John, uh, then you can come to the, the Hebrews study on Wednesday nights. All right, so we got lots of groups and opportunities for you to be a part of those because we're trying to understand Jesus. And so as we're going through the gospel of John, John makes it really clear what his purpose is in this gospel. He wants us to know and believe that Jesus is not just his best friend, but that Jesus is the Christ, that Jesus is the Messiah. Messiah is the Hebrew word. Christ is the Greek word. 
meaning the anointed one. The Israelites had been waiting for years and years and years, believing that God was going to send a promise, that he was going to send a Savior. And John wants us to know and believe that Jesus is that guy. And so at the end of his gospel, he gives us his purpose statement, his summary. It's in John chapter 20. We're going to read this, these two verses every week during our series because we need to understand why John wrote the gospel in order to understand why he included what he did in it. So he says in John chapter 20, verses 30 through 31, Truly, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. He's like, I couldn't get to them all. There's a ton of them. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. So as we read through the Gospel of John, this is what we need to be looking for. John choosing particular people, particular instances, particular details to share so that we will believe that Jesus is the Christ. Those are the glasses that we're putting on. Now last week, he started off by just talking about who Jesus is. He didn't start with Mary and Joseph and the angels and the baby and the manger and the animals lowing and the shepherds and the wise men and all of that kind of other stuff that the other gospel writers start with. John doesn't start there. He actually goes way back before that because he wants us to know that Jesus was not created on Christmas, but that Jesus always has been. And so he calls Jesus the word, the truth and the expression of God, the word. And he says the word has always been. He, is, he was in the beginning. He was, he was with God and he was God, which is an amazing way of expressing the Trinity, that he was with God and he was God. And so John wants us to know who Jesus is and set the stage for the rest of the gospel, and then he gets into the stories. And this is, I'm really excited about this part of our series. As we start to go through, John starts telling stories about Jesus so that we can understand that he is who he says he is. And he actually begins uh, not with Jesus himself. He says Jesus is the word and all of that. But then he tells us about this guy named John, which could be a little bit confusing because the writer of the gospel is named John. And he's telling us about this guy named John, but they're not the same John. And they make it super confusing because they both spell their names with an H. Now, I just went ahead and spelled my name without an H to, to, to make it simple. So if I reference myself during the sermon, you will not hear me pronounce the H. So that's how you'll know the difference. But if... <laughs> It's a waste. Think about the carpal tunnel I'm saving by not typing an H every single time I type. But uh, uh, if I actually counterbalance that by every time I have to write out my whole name, which is Jonathan, you know, (laughs) so it probably nets out. There you go, Jonathan. That's Jonathan, by the way. And uh, not to confuse things. And so we've got two people here, and, and, and I mentioned this last week, but I'll mention it again. Anytime you're reading in the Gospel of John, if there's a John mentioned, it's not John. Because John never refers to himself by his name when he's writing. He always uses some sort of title or descriptor to talk about himself. So this is a different John. This is what, who we know as John the Baptist. So to help delineate between the two, I'm going to call John the Apostle, who writes the gospel. I'm going to call John the Apostle, Johnny A. All right? And John the Baptist, we're going to call Johnny B. Okay? So we'll keep them clear that way. Uh, Johnny B is out in the desert And he is teaching, and he is baptizing people for the forgiveness of their sins. And he is an eccentric dude, and he's grabbing a lot of people's attention. 
He's out here talking about the Messiah. He's talking about the, this one who is coming. And it, gra- it grabs the attention. Eventually, he starts you know, garnering a following. And uh, the Pharisees, the religious people in town, take notice. They're like, we got to go figure out who this John, Johnny B guy is. Johnny B. Good, maybe? I don't know. This, who this Johnny B guy is out in the middle of the wilderness. And so they send out a delegation, some of their scribes and some of their, their Levites, okay, some of their staff and interns and such. And they send them out to check out this guy, John the Baptist, who's baptizing people and talking about all this stuff. And they go up to him and they say, John, we, we want to know who you are. Who, who are you? And John first starts off by saying, well, I'll tell you who I'm not. I'm not the Messiah. Let's just get that clear right now. That is not me. Because some people were apparently saying that he was or thinking that he was. He said, no, no, no. That is not me. They said, okay, if you're not the Messiah, are you Elijah? Because they thought Elijah was going to be coming back. I said, are you Elijah? And he said, no, 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 not Elijah. They said, well, if you're not the Messiah and you're not Elijah, are you at least a prophet? And he said, no. And I think it's funny because his answer gets shorter each time he answers. He starts off with, I am not the Christ. And then he says, no. I'm not, when they ask him about Elijah, and then he just says, no, to the prophet thing. They said, well, who are you then? And, and their question is, if you're not the Messiah, and you're not Elijah, and you're not a prophet, who do you think you are out here baptizing people? And this is his answer. All right, who do you think you are? This is John's answer. Um, John chapter 1, verse 26. Well, we're going to be, if you have your Bibles with you, we're going to be in the, the second half of chapter 1 of John, and the first part of chapter 2 is the ground we're going to cover today. All right, 26, verse 26. John answered them, saying, I baptize with water, but there stands one among you whom you do not know. It is he coming after me is preferred before me, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to loose. And you can imagine them being like, standing here? Like right here? Like one of these people? They start looking, is it you? Is it that? Is it them? Is it, is it me and I don't know it? You know, who, who, is, who is it that he's talking about here? And they don't get their answer that day. And, and I don't know if they stuck around or if they took off, but he says this one day, and then in verse 29, says, tells us that the next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He says, Him. He's the first person that we know of in Scripture that says, Him. And he uses this term, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world. And I believe they would have known instantly what he was talking about. It would have drawn their minds back. You see, these are are first century Jews. They have a very good awareness of the Old Testament scripture. They have a very good national awareness of what has happened to the Jews and the Israelites throughout the course of history. They, they, They instantly, when he said the Lamb of God, would have instantly been transported back to when the Jews, the Israelites, were captive in Egypt. And God wanted to set them free so that they could pursue the promised land, the land that he had promised to them. But he needed to release them from captivity. And so he sent a bunch of plagues to try and convince Pharaoh to let the people 
go, and it didn't work. And then there was one final plague that he was going to send. God decided he was going to send the angel of death over the entire nation. And as the angel of death passed over the entire nation, the firstborn son in every household would die. But he told his people that if they would slaughter a lamb... And if they would take the blood of that lamb and they would put it on the doorposts of the house, that when the angel of death passed, went over the land and saw the blood on the doorposts of the house, that the angel would pass over their house. So every year they would celebrate the Passover. Sure enough, their, their firstborn sons were spared. And at the Passover, they would always sacrifice a lamb. It was called the Passover lamb. The Passover lamb paid for the sins of the people. But the people of Israel believed that one day God was going to be sending, for lack of better terms, a permanent Passover lamb. One who would give their life for everyone and permanently cover the debt of sin. And so when Jesus walks up to John and John says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, they knew he was talking about the Messiah. And now they didn't, ha they didn't see it yet, of course, at this point, but we know that he did give his life, shedding his blood on the cross to pay for our sin so that by believing in Jesus, we can be free and forgiven. But John is the first one to point him out. In John, verse 32, John bore witness, saying, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and he remained upon him. I did not know him. But he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, Upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and testified that this is the Son of God. This is a big moment. And it's interesting to me that John says, I didn't know him because, I don't know if you know this about the history, but Jesus and John the Baptist are cousins. John's uh, mother, Elizabeth, was pregnant with him when Mary came pregnant with Jesus to visit her uh, in the Christmas story that we read in other Gospels. So John most likely did know Jesus as a man, but I believe what he's saying here is that when he saw the Spirit descend on Jesus like a dove, and that was the sign that he was told was going to show him who this person was going to be, that he knew Jesus in a new way, in an elevated way, he knew the real Jesus, and he knew and was confirmed that Jesus was the Messiah. He was the Son of God. This is huge. Now, John doesn't tell us this, but, but we know from other Gospels, this is also the same time, likely, that John baptized Jesus in the Jordan River. And he didn't think that he should do that. He didn't feel like he was worthy to do that, but Jesus said this needs to be done. And so he did. John recognizes something crucial, and this is what I want you to grab this as a, as a big idea. What John notices or what he says about Jesus is very, very important. As influential as John was, as many followers as he has, much curiosity was surrounding him, he looked at Jesus and he said, Jesus is better than me. I am not worthy to even touch his shoe. He is preferred before me. Jesus is better than me. And so he makes that statement, and then it tells us this in verse 35. This is the very next verse. And again, the next day, so another day passes, the next day, John stood with two of his disciples. 
Now we know for a fact from what we read later, one of these disciples that John is standing with is Andrew. It's a guy named Andrew, who is a disciple of John the Baptist. The other one never gets named, but because he is unnamed, we can make an assumption that John the Apostle is writing about himself. So most likely what we have here is John the Baptist standing and teaching and baptizing and doing his normal John the Baptist thing. And he's got Andrew, who's one of his disciples with him. And he has John, who's one of his disciples with him. I, I'm a little curious actually to know what, what John the Baptist called John the Apostle, because they couldn't have just called everybody John. That would have gotten really confusing. Okay? They must, I don't know if they had nicknames or what they had going on. My, my sister just, just went ahead and married a guy named John, by the way. So when I go home for, vaca for vacation or for holidays or anything like that, we've always got two Johns in the house. It's very confusing. And we even, we even spell our names the same way, so I can't pronounce the H or anything. Can't play that game. And so usually it's Big John and Little John. Thankfully, I'm Little John. Okay. <laughs> huh? Yeah, our son's John, but we call him JD, so we keep that one pretty clean. Okay. So he's Big John. I'm Little John. I say big because he's six foot seven. So Big John and Little John. Um, or my mom always calls me Jonathan. She always has. But um, yeah, I don't wonder if they had nicknames or not. But anyway, you've got John the Baptist with Andrew and John. And verse 36, looking at Jesus as he walked away, as he walked away, Jesus is kind of making his way out now. He said, behold, the Lamb of God. John's amazed. I think he's just amazed and he's blown away and he can't get over it, you know. So every time he sees him, he's like, it's him. It's him, everybody. It's him. I've been talking about him, and he's here. It's him. And when he does that, the two disciples heard him speak, and they followed Jesus. They bailed on John. They bailed on John the Baptist. But I don't think John had a single problem with that. Because when John looked at Jesus, he knew that Jesus was better. And if these two people had been following him, what better for them to do but to leave him and go follow Jesus himself? And so I don't think John's feelings are hurt at all when they go. I think he's excited for them. He's the one. Not John the Baptist. He's the one. He's the better teacher. And so in verse 38 then Jesus turned and seen them following, because they didn't say, hey, cat, wait up or anything. You know, they, were, they just kind of started, he's a little creepy, but they just kind of started following him. And eventually he realizes they're there and he turns around. Jesus turned and seen them following, said to them, what do you seek? They said to him, Rabbi, which is, trans, which is to say, uh, when translated, teacher, where are you staying he said to them, come and see. They came and saw where he was staying and remained him, remained with him that day. Now it was about the 10th hour. And they wouldn't just remain with him that day, by the way. They would remain with him for roughly three years, following him everywhere. You know, they, they used that interesting term for him. They called him a rabbi. And a rabbi just means a teacher but the way that it would work for people in that culture is that when you, if you were a young man, probably these, these disciples are teenagers, potentially late teenagers. Uh, they would start, uh, disciples would start looking for a rabbi around the age of 15 or so. 
and then up into their younger 20 years, and then rabbis would come around around in their 30s. And so Jesus was about 30 or so at this point, from what we understand. And so these young guys start following him. And the goal of a, a rabbi and disciples is that the rabbi would live with as closely as they could with the disciples and would teach them. But it wasn't just about teaching them the scripture. Most of the disciples, and you, there were other rabbis and other disciples, and obviously John had, was a teacher and he had disciples, and most of the disciples already knew the scripture. In fact, most of them had it memorized by the time they were you know, 12 or 13 years old. That's what most young Jewish boys at the time would do. They would learn and they would memorize the scripture. In fact, like I said, most of them probably had it memorized. So it wasn't so much about teaching them what the scripture said. The rabbi's role was to teach them how to apply the scripture in life. How you actually live it out. So, okay, the Old Testament scripture, the law tells us that we're not supposed to work on the Sabbath. But what does that mean? What is work and what's not work? Can I pick heads of grain or can I not pick heads of grain? If my ox is in a ditch, can I get it out or can I not get it out? How am I actually supposed to apply and live this thing out? So what disciples would do is they would choose a teacher, a rabbi to follow, and then they would follow them and they would watch everything that they did. They would watch the way that they lived. They would watch the way that they interacted. They would watch the things that they did and the things that they didn't do. They would constantly be asking questions. Why did you do that? Why did you respond that way? Why did you talk to that person? Why did you pick them? Why did you pick that? And as you read through not only John's gospel, but also the other gospels, what you see is his disciples are constantly asking him questions. Why did you do that? Because they're trying to soak in who he is so they can become as much like him as they possibly can become. So they're giving, it's almost like the, it's almost like the text between the lines. Uh, I'm, I'm, a big, I'm a big fan of music, as you know, most of you know. You can see I, I play in the band and sing some, and, and I really enjoy music. I really enjoy uh, equipment and gear. I like It's a hobby of mine. And, um, and so I actually spend a little bit of time, or a good bit of time, I probably should stay, uh, on YouTube, the YouTubes, for a lot of different reasons. But there are several YouTube channels I love to watch that are, that are musicians or, or uh, you know, gear reviews or other things like that. There's one in particular I really like called Music is Win. Okay? Music is Win. It's got a great channel. And uh, recently they had the big uh, music showcase. It's called NAMM, N-A-M-M. It's where they, all the companies come together and they show off their newest, latest, coolest gear. Uh, everybody gets together and they all nerd out. And uh, so he, he was at NAMM and he got the opportunity to talk to um, three Great musicians in particular that he created vid videos for. One of them was uh, Paul Reed Smith, who founded PRS Guitars. Uh, another is a musician, a, a Spanish musician named Orianti, um, who's a fantastic guitar player. And the other was Victor Wooten, um, who is probably the greatest bass player of all time. And so what he did with each three, that's arguable, I know. But uh, he, uh, the music people in the room are like, I don't know, I don't know. Flea's pretty good, I don't know, but... Flea's not the greatest guitar player of all time. But uh, Vic Wooten is. Anyway, so he, uh, he got the opportunity to talk to these three people. And what he did was really unique. He took his guitar and he played. He said, I'm just going to play three chords. They were interesting. They were neat chords. Three chord progression. And I want you to just play whatever you want. Whatever feels right to you, 
Let's play it over top of what I'm doing. So he played his three chords, and then they played what they played over top of it. And then as soon as they were done, he looked at them and he said, now, can you tell me, why did you play that? And they were all just stunned by that question. Because what he was trying to get to and what he wanted us as his viewers to see, to, to understand, is to get a window into the mind of the musician to see how they assessed what they heard, how they interpreted what they heard, what they felt, and then how that came out their fingers as they played. So you, you could get a sense of the, the depth of understanding and wisdom behind the music, not just to hear music theory, but to hear application of music theory. This is what a rabbi was doing for their disciples was helping them to understand what situations the scripture applied to and then how to apply that scripture in that situation. To give them a depth and a foundation of knowledge and wisdom when it came to the scripture. And so for John, knowing that he had an imperfect understanding of the scripture and how to, to, to work it out, for him to see his disciples that were with him and following him, to now walk with Jesus, who has a perfect understanding of the scripture, has a perfect understanding of how to balance truth and grace, knows how he should be spending his time, knows what is of most value to God and brings the most glory to God, for John to see his disciples walking off with Jesus must have been the most proud moment of his entire life and to say yes you know listen Jesus is better Jesus is better that's your guy he's the real deal and so not only did Andrew and John go with him but John goes or Andrew goes and he finds his brother his brother's name is Simon he brings him to Jesus Jesus says hey I'm not going to call you Simon I'm going to call you Peter all right he renames him calls him Peter so Peter joins up with them. One thing that's interesting to me about Andrew, Andrew's, um, he's only mentioned three times in John's gospel. Every time he is bringing somebody to Jesus. The first time, he's bringing Peter to Jesus. The second time, he is uh, bringing, oh, who's he bringing the second time? The second time, uh, he's bringing, um, third time, he's bringing Greeks to Jesus. And the second time, I wish I could remember, but I'm blanking now that I'm standing in front of you. And I didn't write it down. So I'll think of it at some point in the middle of the message. I'll drop it in in case you're writing that kind of stuff down. Three times, every time he is bringing somebody to Jesus. All right. Then Jesus heads towards home. Now he's got, he's got John, he's got Andrew, he's got Peter with him. And he's heading towards home, heading towards where he's from, Galilee. It's the region that he's from. It's where he did most of his ministry. And along the way, they pick up a guy named Philip. Now, Andrew and uh, Peter, they're from the same town as Philip, and so they know him, and so they go tell him, and Philip joins up with them. And then Philip meets Jesus and realizes this is the guy, this is the Messiah, this is the Savior, I believe that. And he runs and he gets a guy, tells a guy named Nathaniel. So it's growing. He goes and he gets Nathaniel, and he says, Nathaniel, we found him. <laughs> You're not going to believe it. We found the Messiah. It's Jesus, and Jesus from Nazareth. It actually makes me wonder if he already knew Jesus from Nazareth from growing up in the same area. You know, they're all from the same parts. I wonder if they, they knew each other. But he's, this is him saying, it's Jesus. We didn't know that before, but we know that now. It's him. John said so. And so he's, he decides, he says, we found the Messiah. It's Jesus from Nazareth. And Nathaniel, Nathaniel, in one of the funnier moments in Scripture, I think, says, 
Does anything good come out of Nazareth? <laughs> Which would be like, I found the Messiah. He's from Rockwell. He's like, mm, I don't know. <laughs> I'm not so sure. Not so sure. <laughs> I didn't say granite. Yeah, I just picked on Rockwell. Anyway, um, he, he says, anything good come out of Nazareth? And, and Philip says, just come on, man. Just come on. Just come and, come and see him. And it's a funny moment because, uh, because Nathaniel walks up to Jesus, and the first thing, Jesus sees him coming. And he says, he said, now, there is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit, which I think is a joke. I think that Jesus knows what Nathaniel said about Nazareth and says, now there's a guy that knows what he's talking about, okay? And, uh, and Nathaniel says, how do, you know, how do you know me? And Jesus said, listen, before you even showed up, I saw you when you were sitting under, under the fig tree. And as soon as Jesus says, I saw you before you even knew me, Nathaniel's like, all right, I believe it. This is, this is him. This is the Messiah. This is the Savior. And Jesus says, oh, I mean, you believe because I said that I saw you when you were sitting under that tree? You haven't seen anything yet. Get ready. Get ready for what you're about to see. You will believe. And then he goes and he does, he, he performs what is his first recorded sign. We use this term sign. It's a demonstration of who he is. And it happens at a wedding. So Jesus has been out with John the Baptist, right? He's picked up disciples, and he's now returning towards home. And there's this wedding at a place called Cana. And at the wedding, uh, there's a bunch of people invited. Surely everybody from town, everybody from the area is likely invited to this wedding. That includes Jesus. That includes his disciples, which are now with him. And it includes Jesus' mama, Mary. So Mary is at this wedding. And you gotta, if you just put yourself into her mindset for a moment, when he left home, however long ago that was, at least several days ago, maybe weeks ago or whatever, when he left home, he left by himself. Normal Jesus. Now, she knows he's the Messiah because the angels told her that he was. She's aware of that, but he hasn't yet been teaching. He hasn't yet been doing miracles that we know of. He hasn't been doing that other than a little vignette we get of him when he's about 13 years old teaching the, the old wise guys in the temple. Uh, but Jesus... Uh, left by himself, and now as he's returning, now he has at least five people with him, disciples. And so in Mary's mind, she knows that the switch has flipped. <laughs> she knows that it's time. She knows that what she's known about him for years and years and years is now going to be public. Now the greatness and the majesty and the presence of God and all of this that she's seen in him for 30 years or whatever is finally going to be on display for everybody to see. And it all culminates at this wedding. Here's what happens. All right, verse, uh, this is chapter 2 now. Jesus is there with Mary and his entourage. And in verse 1, on the third day there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. And both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. Now something terrible happens, at least in the eyes of the wedding goers. Uh, they ran out of wine. All right. Yes, it's true. Clearly very tragic. All right, and this was now, now to be fair, you know, this was obviously, this was part of cultural expectation for them, and uh, it would be a great embarrassment to run out of wine at a wedding. It would be an embarrassment for the master of the, of the household. It would be an embarrassment for the grooms, uh, the, the bridegroom, and all of that, and so this was, a, this was a pretty big issue for them, and in the middle of that, Mary comes to Jesus, and she says, hey, Jesus, 
They're out of wine. I'm just saying. <laughs> it's obvious to Jesus. I don't know exactly how she said it. Don't know how all that worked. You can't, you can't read inflection in the text. But, but, uh, but I know that Jesus knew what she was talking about. She wanted him to do something about it. And I don't think she was talking about running to the 7-Eleven. I don't think that's what she meant. She wanted him to do something miraculous. She wanted him to display his power for everybody at this wedding. And Jesus' response to her is really interesting. He says, he says, woman, which is not disrespectful at that point. Okay, that would have been a, a respectful term for him to use for his mother. He's not disrespectful to his mama. Jesus was not that. And, but he said, woman, what does this have to do with me? My time has not yet come. So I'm not ready for that kind of thing, that kind of public thing, which I think is what she's wanting, a public display. He said, no, my time has not yet come. Yet she still looks at the servants that are there, and he, she says, hey, whatever he tells you to do, to do that. She knows he's going to do something about it, but he's clear that he's not going to make a big public display out of it. And so that's what we're going to pick up in verse 6. Now, there were set there six water pots of stone, according to the manner of purification of the Jews, containing 20 or 30 gallons apiece. These are big stone jars. They're used for purification purposes um, to observe the Jewish law. Jesus said to them, fill the water pots with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, draw some out now and take it to the master of the feast. And they took it. Which would be a very bizarre thing to ask and a very bizarre thing to do, particularly if you were the ones that just poured water into these washing basins, and now you want me to ladle some of that washing basin water out and take it to the master of the feast. But of course, when they did what Jesus said, and they ladled the water out of those jars, it was no longer water. It had turned into wine so they took it to they took it to him and when the master of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine and did not know where it came from they didn't make a big deal out of this this is not a huge public spectacle i don't know if jesus got any credit for this whatsoever all right he the master of the feast did not know where it came from but the servants who had drawn the water knew the master of the feast called the bridegroom and he said to him Every man at the beginning sets out the good wine. And when the guests have well drunk, then the inferior. So he said, most people would start with the good stuff. And then once everybody's had a little bit to drink, then they would bring out the cheap stuff. But he said, you have kept the good wine until now. Which, when you first look at it, first of all, is just an amazing sign of Jesus' power. But it's deeper than that. It's more important than that. It's important that the, the pots that were used were used for purification. They were ceremonial pots to help the Jews observe the law even as they were a part of this wedding or this feast. It's significant that it was drawn out of those pots. And it's significant that the wine that was then served was better than the wine that came before. 
Because I believe that this sign, among other things, is intended for us to understand that Jesus is the better wine. He is the better teacher. He is the better example. He is the fulfillment of the Old Testament law. He is who they were waiting for. And I believe that John included this story as a way of starting off Jesus' ministry so that we can see that Jesus is better and Jesus is the Christ. Verse 11. This beginning of signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. I also think it's significant for us to see that Jesus, this first miracle, was known not to the master of the feast, but to the servants of the feast, which is an important thing to understand about the character and the nature of the kind of teacher that we have to follow. So what do we learn? What's John trying to tell us? Jesus is worth following. He is worth emulating. Because he is the word and he is the truth. He will never let us down. When we look at his example, it will never lead us astray. When we listen to his words, it will never take us down the wrong path. It will never be deceptive. It will never be cunning. It will never be selfish. We can trust Jesus as our rabbi. We can trust him as our teacher. We can watch him move, and we can listen to him talk, and we can see the way that he breathes in between the words. We can watch the way that he applies to life. We can look at who he talks to, who he spends time with, who he's gracious to. We can look at how he followed God's laws, and he can be our teacher. And it's important that we understand that even though we have other teachers in our life, we have small group leaders, we have pastors, and we have podcasts that we may listen to, and we have the radio, and we have all of these things that we may listen to, that none of these teachers stack up to Jesus. Not even close. And it's important that we are not disciples of another person, but that we are disciples of Jesus ultimately. Don't be my disciple, all right? If you try to live like me, Lord, help you, okay? Be a disciple of Jesus. Watch him. Soak him up. Observe him and do what he does. And I know I'm going to mess up as I do that, and you're going to mess up as you do that. We have, there's grace available to us. We are forgiven of our sins, and there is ongoing grace and forgiveness available to, to get us back up to where we need to be, back on the right track. But look at him and know him as well as you possibly can. Jesus is our teacher. Not just his words, but his actions. I want to align myself 100% with him if I can. I'm so thankful that he gives me the spirit to empower me and lead me as I do that. To become more and more like Christ, he gives you the same. But make a commitment to say, I'm going to be as much like him as I can. Am I willing, and the hard part is that is when we see something that he does, something that he teaches, we see the way that he interacts with someone, and it's not consistent with what we think or what we feel or how we live. And when that contrast happens, when that stress is, is observed between who Jesus is and who I am, I have to make the decision on whether I am willing to become like my teacher 
or whether I'm going to stay the way that I am? Am I willing to submit myself 100% to Jesus and how, who he wants me to be and how he wants me to live? Or am I still going to hold on to things for myself that I want, that I desire, that I think I may even need, but that Jesus is showing me different? Am I willing to submit to him in every aspect of my life? Am I willing to submit my worldview to him, my career, my personality, my character, my decisions? Am I willing to submit to Jesus in my ethics, in my sexuality, in my motivations, in my desires, in my values, with my family, in my own personal identity? Am I willing to submit to him in my ego, in my attitudes, my body and what I do with it? Am I willing to submit to him with my friends, what I use as entertainment, all of it, everything? Am I willing to say, whatever it is that I have or that I think I am, am I willing to sacrifice that so that I can be like Jesus? I think about these disciples who just dropped everything without hesitation. And they said, that guy is the embodiment of God. He is the Lamb of God. He is the Son of God. He is the Messiah and the Savior. And I don't care what it costs me. All of that, all of that I consider loss for the gain of having Jesus. And I say today that we put on the same mentality. And we say, I will drop whatever it is that I have, whatever it is that I want, whatever it is that I need, so that I can follow Jesus 100%. And anything that would keep us from doing it, we got to move on. Because Jesus is our teacher. Let's go to him in prayer. Jesus, we want to tell you that we love you. You are our teacher. You are our rabbi. You are our savior. You are our friend. You are our guide. You are our example. And we want to know you. We want to know who you really are. Not by just what everybody says about you or what we've assumed about you, but we really want to see you. Help us to do that as we read through the Gospel of John. As we process it, as we discuss it, as we learn how to observe and apply it. We want to see you. Because we believe what John says about him. We believe that you're the Christ. We believe that you're the Savior. We believe that you died on the cross paying for our sin. We believe that you rose again on the third day. We believe that you returned to the Father. And we believe that you're coming back. And when that day comes, we want to be ready. So that we can look you square in the eye and say, I've become like you. In the power and the leading of the Spirit, in the truth of the Word, I've become like you. Whatever may be keeping us from doing that, show us what it is. Open our eyes. Open our heart. We could submit ourselves fully to you because you are good and you are true. Help us to walk in closeness with you like we never have before. 
to see your power, to see your truth, and to experience your love. God, there may be someone with us today who's believing today for the first time, Jesus, you are the Christ. God, you're going to begin a process in them based on that belief. You're going you're to begin a process in them of transforming them. Of remaking them. Renewing their mind to see things and understand things the way they really are. Of making them more and more like your son. I pray that you use us as a church to walk in this process together. Help us to know where we're supposed to encourage and where we're supposed to challenge so that we can all walk together. You are so good. We are so thankful, Jesus, that you are with us and that you guide us. It's in your name we pray. Amen.